Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Well, Larry, we've talked a lot about the people in your life who were involved in the law. Now let's talk about some cases. Get a little Perry Mason, Matlock moment or two going here. And you were kind enough to uh, unveil some titles of cases that you thought would be interesting. And you write about these, of course, in the memoir. But uh, may I toss the first one your way and have you describe the case? Absolutely. Okay. And the fact that it says disappearance makes it interesting. The William Clark disappearance. What's happening there? Well, well, let's take William Clark first. He was a a pastor, a church man in Newton and quite well known and austere looking, tall, thin, wore glasses that uh, magnified his eyes. Um, He must have read a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, A rather distinguished looking person. And the disappearance is that his clothes were found on the shore at Wingersheek Beach, up on the North Shore, and uh, one day, and everybody thought that he had drowned. Mm-hmm. So, about four years after that incident, uh, a friend of mine that, um, for purposes of privacy, we'll call Horatio, okay, a Shakespearean name, yes, called me one day. He was a good friend. I had known him for a long time. And he said, uh, Larry, he said, and this is like, uh, you know, why did I practice law by myself, uh, even though I was in association with other attorneys sharing expenses? Because I liked it that I didn't know what was going to happen the next morning. So this guy calls me up, Horatio, and he says, do you think you'd be interested in this case? And he tells me a little about it and that he disappeared. And he said he has reappeared and um, he would like uh, – to get back with his wife, who thought he was dead, and uh, oh my gosh, this and, be, and have his wife be able to keep the insurance proceeds, which had been paid because Judge Wysanski, who we had talked about yes. before, had found on the motion of the attorneys for the insurance company that even though there was no corpus delicti, the guy had down by, died by drowning. It sure looked that way, and he was dead. Yeah, so they needed that in order. They so they paid the money. Now, I'll talk about that a little later because there's a little legal twist to that one. So he said, um, and he wants to uh, be able to, uh, you know, resurrect his life. Is that the right word to use? Uh, well, in the, he's, <laughs> he's a pastor. I think that's a perfect word to use. <laughs> so anyway, I go to see William Clark and uh, we uh, – I think my answer to my friend uh, Horatio was, would I? Um, because I thought that this is a case that there's no way they're going to teach you what to do in a case like that in nope. law school. Nope. So I met William Clark, and um, I said to him, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Reverend Clark, I, the only way that this case can be han- handled successfully is for you to put aside your usual mantra or whatever you want to call it of, of being the speaker. I said, you've got to say nothing. You've got to leave everything to me. You've got to leave every answer to me. We're going to call a press conference, and you're going to be asked a million questions. 
you know, newspaper men are not shy. I can say to them, ask me the questions, but they're still going to ask you the questions, and you're going to be tempted to answer. You cannot answer. Mm. You'll undercut your own welfare if you do that. Um, so he listened to me. Uh, we had a press conference. Uh, oh, I mean, the press was fabulously interested in this case. They came in force. There must have been 20 of them. Can you can you remind us around what time, what, what year this might have been roughly? Was it in the 80s, 90s? Uh, I think it probably was in the 70s. 70s. Okay. So we're talking about 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, 45 years ago. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. So as I said, William Clark is dead now. Mm-hmm. So, really dead as opposed to yeah, really did. faking and, death. And the guy across the hall, Herb Schwartz, who didn't like seeing 25 newsmen in front of me, walked into the office while the press conference was going on and made some pronouncement uh, about something, I don't know. And I, I yelled back at him, oh, sorry, Herb, I'll see you a little later because we're busy right now with this press conference. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, listen, lawyers sometimes... He and I were very good friends, despite the bad ending he ran into, uh, and I try to help him with that. But uh, Herb Swartz was a character. We'll get to that. But anyway, um, and, you know, true to form, the newspaper men were asking him questions. Well, where'd you, you know, where'd you go? Where have you been these four years? Were you with anyone? Um, Why do you you stage your death? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And... um, you know, I answered the ones I wanted to, and I didn't answer the ones I didn't want to, as peop- as lawyers will do. And um, the press—so you know, the press conference went very well, and they wanted to follow up. Uh, would he be in the road to Gravert section, uh, this, that, and the other thing? But I avoided all that stuff, and slowly over the ensuing months, um, the press forgot about it. Another interesting part of that case was that the insurance company came along with a big Yankee firm represented by some guy that had gone to Harvard Law School a long time ago who was very sort of demanding and commanding, saying that they want all the money back. So I said to him, uh, and I had determined in my mind that in order to do this without court proceedings, get him back with his family and all that. By that time, he was already living with his wife who got over the... Can I interject only only because my curiosity is going to kill my cat if I don't ask you this question? By this point, you already knew what had happened because he told you, right, I assume? He told me, but that's a privileged communication. So, okay, but is it safe to say that it was premeditated? In other words, he, he wasn't... It didn't knock himself on the head and forget. He knew what he had done. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. And he's a reverend. Fascinating. All right. So let's come back to where we are. So so the attorney, you know, wanted all the money back. So I had already decided that some of the money should go back in order to keep it out of court. But what I did say to him after he got through telling me that they wanted all the money back in no uncertain terms, I, I sort of laid back and I said, well— you know, the guy is dead according to the law. There is a legal principle called res judicata. That's a Latin term for the the thing is decided. And uh, it puts a case to bed. I said, you know, res judicata, he's dead. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you, you're the people who went out and got that determination from Judge Wysanski, no less. So I don't know that he's, I don't know that he's, uh, that the wife has to give back anything. 
Certainly he wouldn't be the one to give back anything because he didn't get the money. But he's living with his wife. I said, well, yeah, wants to wants to have a normal life. What's wrong with that? Um, so he, so I, but I did say to him, I said, look, I said, in practical terms, I said, I'm willing to make some adjustment with the insurance company, but not all the money. And uh, so I'm, I'm foreshortening the situation, but it never did go to court and it was settled and money was paid. The case came out in the newspapers on the front page. When I walked into court the next day over at Middlesex, 10 people came up to me and said, aren't you the guy? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's an instant noticeability because the press is swarming all over a story like that. I would see, I don't know about then, but today that would be a national news story. That would make the, the, uh, the social media headlines go nuts. So the, the upshot is you settled out of court. You got him, he was back with his family and didn't have to give all the money back. No, it was a tripartite winner because, number one, it was a sui generis case, one of a kind, that I handled, uh, uh, I suppose you'd say, well. Um, and um, it also was a nice fee yeah. in the case. Just, uh, and, and it was a notoriety. One more question. Uh, put your legal hat on. I know you always have it handy. Is it against the law to fake your own death? Is that an actual crime to uh, allow people to think that you're no longer on this mortal coil, or is it just something so rare that there isn't a crime against it? Who's who, you know who? I, no, I don't think so. Okay, I mean because somebody who fakes their own death, um, you know, you could say that they've they're hurting themselves as well as anybody. True. I, I don't think so, but I could be wrong about that. Well, we'll leave that to the uh, scholars out there who are listening intently to every word. No, no, anyway. you can leave it to the <laughs> lawyers who are smarter than I am. Well, there's only a few of those. Let's talk about another case. Now, I remember, I'm a bit younger than you are, obviously, but I remember a movie called— You keep saying you obviously— Well, only only because, you know, when we stand next to each other, we look like brothers. But <laughs> there was a movie back in the late 60s that was famous for being— X-rated, called I Am Curious Yellow. I've never seen it. I have no idea. But I was 10 years old when it came out, and I know, ooh, it's rated X. You have a case that you call I Am Curious Yellow. So, curiosity again, what's that all about? Well, you know, like Yale Altman, my friend, we used to go down to Scully Square when we were kids to try and get in to see the burlesque show. At the old Howard, you yeah. went there? So the I, yeah, right. So that I Am Curious Yellow came out around 1968 and 19. 69, and it was supposed to be sexually explicit. Now, it was a joke um, compared to what you see oh, now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was, it was, the sexual scenes were comedic rather than titillating. If you remember, Midnight Cowboy was, was also rated X at that point. It would be rated a soft R today. But anyway, we digress. Well, so I am curious, Yellow um, came out and it was, it was, you know, it was Moneymaker when it was put out in New York State and some other states by Grove Press. But Herb Swartz, who I mentioned before, represented this sort of, sort of this Greek guy who claimed he had a contract from Sandrew Productions in Sweden who made the picture to show it in the United States. And he did have some sort of a contract. And Herb took the case 
and got a team together, including me, and we tried to figure out, and uh, we, and the guy had a copy of the picture, and we showed it in Boston at a local theater down near Mass Ave. Well, Grove Press got all excited about that, and they decided to sue us in Massachusetts. Larry, you write that Barney Rossett is the head of Grove Press at the time. Uh, they brought this case, and we all got together in the office until 2 in the morning, thinking what would our answer be to the illegal case that they had filed in Massachusetts. Well, Herb would always say of me, Herb could be a little arch or whatever the word would be, uh, he would say of me, wind him up and send him into court, and he'll do fine. <laughs> Meaning that, well, Larry is a great speaker, but he's not too bright. <laughs> but send him in there. Keep but him, send him in there. Keep that motor mouth going. And uh, the fact of the is, I said, Herb, what do I do when the judge or somebody or the other lawyer asks a question? And I got along very fine on the cases that he sent sent me in on. We'll get to that. So in this particular case, um, we're sitting there and wondering how we'd answer. And I said, you know, I don't know why we didn't think of this before, but instead of just answering, we should file a counterclaim and say that we can show the picture not only in Massachusetts, but every place. Hey, Larry, how'd you come up with that one? And I said to myself, because I'm just as smart as you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so that we, uh, that's what we filed. And that really upset Grove. Press I would imagine. Because they, they thought being, you know, in the movie industry, everybody's very cynical. So they figured that we had the judge, whoever the judge would be in Massachusetts, tied up. They'd never win. So they said, well, come down to New York and we'll talk about it. So we went down to New York to talk about it. And we settled for a, a goodly share of the profits from the movie, and it made a lot of money. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, Herb was putting on my desk checks for 10 grand. I mean, 10 grand then was like, you know, 40, 50 today. And it not, that's how we bought our house that we live in today. That's how Lois got, at 29, I bought her a mink. You could wear those then. Mm. And so all these checks kept kept Here's something that uh, if you were to ask anybody on the street in Brookline, you know this guy, Larry Ruttman, right? Sure, of course. Writes about baseball. He's involved in history. He's a lawyer. He's a musician. He loves music. He's also uh, (laughs) represented the quote-unquote producer of one of the biggest porn films of its generation. I don't think anybody would believe that. (laughs) And yet, it's true. Well, it is. I didn't look upon it as... There was nothing sexual about it. No, 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 no. But it's just so interesting. that There were there was another movie uh, it's called, I think, Behind the Green or Purple Door, I think. And there were just a few because it was so – there was no internet and there was just – pornography was, was hush-hush. But it was blown up into greater proportion than it was. Well, within a fairly short number of years, I'm, I'm not sure what the exact chronology is, but porn films became – much more pornographic. And much more accessible, too. So what was it like going up against a movie group? I mean, was that new an experience for you? Uh, did you uh, you're a movie fan, but did it, was it just business at that point? Well, it got me into the movie. Uh, I represented several. There are other situations that I didn't point to in this particular uh, group of cases, but uh, I got into the movie business. Yeah, there is one uh, called... Writing a wrong, that has to do with the movies. Um, but um, what happened, I think there were some interesting byproducts of this. Um, 
so that we, as I say, we made a nice settlement, and um, I did. Uh, one of the lawyers, uh, I guess, we got into the movie business. Herb did, and I did, and there was one case that came up before judge, uh, before the chief judge of the superior court, the guy that appointed. Robert Buzz Barton that we spoke about oh, yes. previously. Oh, yes. Of course, I remember that name. Well, let's talk about writing a wrong since we're talking cases. This well, let me with... finish what I'm saying. Oh, okay, here. all right. And that um, so that uh, one time I went into court, I don't think I told this, but uh, that particular judge uh, was hearing me argue against Robert Caporal. Yeah, you told me that was the Honorable James Lynch, the chief judge of Massachusetts Superior Court at the time. This is one of those situations where Herb sent me into court because I can talk. Well, the judge let the the case go on for it had to do with the Bugs Bunny cartoons, and uh, the case went on for about a half hour. A lot of and it's the motion session. A lot of other lawyers sitting in the room waiting their turn, but uh, the judge let it go on for quite a distance, as I say, a half an hour, and um, so finally, even he had had enough. So he puts his hands up to his ears and wiggles them. And it's about Bugs Bunny. He says, "He says, well, he says, I've heard enough. That's all, folks. I was waiting for that. I could have to happen. <laughs> um, so we're talking cases here, and you alluded to writing a wrong being sort of connected to the industry as well, film industry. What was that all about? Uh, yeah, writing a wrong was um, – this was a movie case in the sense that um, there was a firm down in New York that used to send out people uh, to – it was assumed that exhibitors raked off the top and didn't report all their ticket sales. This, this is the old days when theaters, there were many more open-air theaters and theaters in general privately owned or company owned. Right. And, and uh, this particular, theater, uh, the one about writing a wrong, was a guy who really was something else and a very mild guy. And he, he bought a theater in one of the small suburban towns outside of Boston and he ran it. And uh, so one day, he gets a call that somebody is down at the theater looking for him. So this guy that was looking for him, I think passed himself off as an accountant or something like that, was from a law firm in New York that I don't think it exists anymore. And they uh, represented movie uh, producers in on the West Coast in Hollywood. And the idea was to collect from the movie exhibitors the assumed amount that they had raked off the top, but they had no proof of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this particular case, they told the guy, this particular guy that came to see him, told him in very un no uncertain terms that if he didn't come through with the money that day, that his reputation would be ruined, his own business would be taken away, uh, he's liable to face criminal charges, he'd lose his house, he'd lose his family, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this guy was a very gentle guy, and uh, this is before he had an attorney, and he succumbed to this and gave, and got, gave, the, gave them a bank check that particular day. Hmm. Now, there was an attorney down in uh, Virginia by the name of Stanley Sachs, I told you a little about him before. He's 99 now, and he's still practicing law. His father before him still practiced law at 95. And Stanley had handled a lot of these cases. So I called Stanley. He spoke with a southern drawl, but he was a tough guy. And he said, yeah, I said, I, we, we'll do it together. So he would come up to Boston from time to time. We draw uh, as a uh, So we brought a case against uh, Hampton, I guess it was, to get the money back. 
and then damages on top of that. So the Nutter McLennan and Fish, which is still around, is a you know very old established law firm, and the guy that was chosen to represent them was Charles Parrott, who also has a military record as a general in the reserve and uh, wartime service, I think, and a very effective lawyer, a very strong lawyer, who kept telling us that we were going to lose because we didn't have a leg to stand on. Hmm. But as I say, they had no proof that the guy had raked off the top, and I don't think he did. Some of these exhibitors did, but this particular guy didn't, and uh, he just wasn't in his nature. Rather than the case going to court, it was really tried by depositions. Stanley Sachs came up to Boston several times. We ultimately straightened out the case for a low six-figure sum, which uh, Mr. Parrott uh, said we wouldn't get, but it that did come to pass. Well, basically, it sounds as though this guy was strong-armed and threatened. Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. And he, he caved right then and there and gave up a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Uh, the fear factor had a lot to do with it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. because he was threatened with things that he thought could happen to him. And uh, who, well, who would, who would uh, give up uh, a significant sum of money without having a lawyer to represent him? Well, you also realize the power of Hollywood uh, through the ages, certainly back then and even now. I mean, the, they've got a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of influence, don't they? So you're sticking up for the little guy in this case. Absolutely. We were sticking up for the little guy, and Stanley and I developed a nice relationship, and I called him up just a few days ago because it came to me that writing a wrong, which is not in the original copy of the memoir but will be in the ultimate copy, is something that I wanted to tell. And he's 99 years old. 99 years old, old and he still practices Still law. sharp. Okay. And his son, who's the last in the line, was about 65, is a well-respected attorney down there in uh, – I guess near Virginia Beach. Well, he may be last in the line now, but it's never too late, right? <laughs> you can add to the progeny. All right, let's talk about a couple of other cases here while we have you. Here's one that's got a, an action sense to it, fleeing the scene, fleeing the scene. That's the story of a guy who uh, thought that Alston was a tougher neighborhood than it really is. <laughs> and uh, he thought the car behind him was chasing him. And that uh, he became a little excited, a regular guy with a family, a couple of kids. And um, he became rattled and he hit a bicyclist Ooh. and who suffered serious injuries. And rather than stay there, he fled the scene. Uh. And they caught up with him 20 miles later. So that was several crimes. Um, not really, uh, the, the most serious one is fleeing the scene of an accident mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where personal injury is involved. And so the district attorney brought the case against him, and the, the uh, district attorney's office was represented by a female attorney who was really tough, and she wanted to put him in jail for 10 years in state prison so that um, I represented him, and uh, I thought time was on our side. So I delayed the. There was, you know, the, the facts were there for a conviction. There's no way that case could be fought. To fight it in on the question of guilt or innocence would be foolhardy because the judge would get angry that he had defended the case and give him a stiffer sentence, maybe what the district attorney wanted. The best way to handle it was to try and make a, a deal. 
which couldn't be done with this particular district attorney. She was very adamant about where she stood. So uh, that was impossible, but I thought time was on our side. So I used every stratagem that I could think up to keep continuing the case. And it didn't come up until maybe well over a year later. And uh, when we got to the court, we reported that we couldn't make any agreement uh, between ourselves, that the judge would have to do that, that we were going to plead guilty, but that I wanted to have time to make an argument uh, as to what the disposition, disposition should be. And I, I uh, argued for a long, long community service, a suspended sentence, that he had young children, he should stay with his family, a long, a long argument about keeping him out of jail, but everything else, keeping him out of jail that could be done in the nature of throwing the book at him, for it was obviously something he never should have done. So what the judge said, it was a female judge, this is all, I don't know why that was, but she was a very well-respected judge, and she was very complimentary to me. She, she called my argument, uh, I guess, uh, something that was very well done, and she was tempted to do what I wanted her to do, mm-hmm. but that he had done something that was so flagrant that she just felt that she couldn't do that But what she did do was not sentence him to state's prison and sentence him to one year in the House of Correction, and his good behavior got him out of there within a matter of months. So that um, to me and to people I know, that was a great result. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You think about an instant, just an instant like that that can change your life forever and I'm not going to comment on the case, but you know that for the rest of that guy's life, he's never going to forget that or live it down, I'm sure. It's going to be with him, in other words. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there was a lot of work put in on that particular case. And the fee was not uh, inconsequential. So that, um, And I made sure that I collected it before the hearing and the time he went to jail because, as they say, in criminal cases, get paid beforehand because if you wait, you never will. So the family was upset at the fee, uh, and uh, I th- it just doesn't happen that people say, "Oh, great, uh, we paid you this, and you you got him, you got him this, that, and the other thing." The only thing that would have made them happy is if if he was not guilty. Right, exactly. Let's do one more. Uh, we have time for one more in this podcast, and that one is called, and in quotes, a high fence. And I don't think you're. I'm guessing you're not referring to the Green Monster. At Fenway. No. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, uh, Jordan, I drew these for you because I said to myself, when Jordan looks at these, is he going to be interested? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? I've had a comment on every, every one of them. Yeah, that's you right. You, you've taken the bait. Absolutely. So that, um, you know, listen, I'm a writer, Jordan, supposedly, and I'm trying to get you to uh, like them. You got me. You, you no, got me. It, so, it, uh, no, it wasn't Fenway Park. It was actually... On the, as you look out of my backyard, on the left side, there's a whole row of trees, and there's a house backing up to it. There was a house backing up to it where, as a matter of fact, the uh, education commissioner in Brookline, a guy named Holland, lived in the early years that Lois and I lived there. But anyway, um, that's in a, 
two-family zone. Our house is in a one-family zone. And in Brookline, where space is a highly valued community, and where the town now is doing everything else, everything they can to have houses built where they weren't built before to broaden the tax base, they're allowing two-family, uh, one-family houses to be converted into two-family houses, and, a, and an application was made to convert the house that was there into a two-family house, which would involve taking away a massive amount of dirt that made a hill behind the house and taking it to subterranean levels. And um, you could not defeat this. Um, the only thing you could do is appeal a decision and delay it and maybe take an appeal to the land court. But that costs a lot of money because they're going to win ultimately. So I hired um, Scott Gladstone, uh, who's an attorney in Brookline, because he knows the 250-page zoning law backwards and forwards in Brookline, and uh, I thought he would be a good guy to join with me because he's a very low-key guy, and I'm sort of a high-key guy, and I thought we would make a good combination. So anyway, to, to shorten it, what happened is that we ultimately did bring enough pressure on the builder who wanted to get it done to make them come to the bargaining table, and we did write a contract of settlement, which involved their putting up a fence to separate our when I I got all my neighbors together. There were five of us all together. One, two, yeah. And um, we, um, I was the one, not only to lead the group, but I was the one to collect the money to pay Scott and other expenses of the case. But the ultimate result was that. Um, a fence was supposed to be built of five feet. And I said, no, no, I said, you know, that extra foot, if it's six feet, is going to make a big difference. It's going to put them behind the fence and it's going to put us on the other side of the fence. They won't see us and we won't see them. Well, it so happens that after all the dirt was taken, they were low down. So before any people moved in, we took a look at it and it really... You know, I, and you know these places sold like in Brookline for a couple of million dollars each. But you wouldn't want to live there, Jordan, because it, they were like in a prison, and we were on the outside. And you know, I didn't want to do that, but that was the way for us to protect ourselves. So that when you, the guy in Brookline who runs these sort of appeals was a wise guy one day. He said to me, you know, Larry, he says, what do you think this is going to depreciate your property by? Hmm. I said, I don't know. He says, I think three to $500,000. So I said, well, I hope not. Well, what we finally agreed to and straightened out, I don't think is going to depreciate my property at all or the other people's property at all. And our next-door neighbor, who was the one most affected by it, now has the privacy that they really wanted and weren't going to get with a low offense and right. other amenities. Like, we also got them to agree that on that bank of trees between me and them, they wouldn't disturb the root system of the trees so that they wouldn't come down because of... You, you know, we've talked about some major cases involving criminal activity, involving uh, injustice. You've worked with the Supreme Court. Do you find... <laughs> As a citizen, that sometimes the toughest cases involve yards and land and the land courts and, and the 
local communities. It, I mean, I've known people who have done amazing amounts of work to try to get a building, I'm sorry, a tree moved from one part of a building's lot to another. It seems like the hoops are just incredible to jump through. Yeah, I do because, um, well, first of all, let me tell you what I told Lois a long time ago. I said, get along with your neighbors, whoever they are, because if you get into discussions with them, it makes life miserable. You want to be able to greet every neighbor with a smile and not have fights with them. And I, I said that to Lois, not because she's the type of person who would get into fights, but just because I thought it was a sensible thing to say. And we always have gotten along with our neighbors. Um, and um, But to the general question you asked me, yeah, I think people get very agitated about land rights and what they own and what you own and trees that drop leaves on their property. And um, in the very house that I was just talking about, a previous owner who was the sister of a well-known judge uh, said that uh, had some gripe with something on our land and her sister, who was well-known, wrote a little short brief to and sent it to me so forth and so on. Um, I I think that uh, it, it's a rule that I tell myself is that I don't want to get into these kind of squabbles. I would if it was something very important like this one I just told you. But the ordinary small gripes that people get so agitated about, I try and steer clear of altogether. Good advice from a guy who's been around the block a few times, even in his own neighborhood has had to deal with these issues. Larry, as always, a pleasure. Case closed, at least for now. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.